Hey there, and welcome to Sepsis Multicast Episode 5. This is an episode from the archive, and in this episode, we have a special guest, Craig Patterson, who is going to help us summarize and distill down a lot of the things that we've gone over in previous episodes. And we're going to boil everything down into a cohesive message on how to treat sepsis today. Jeremy, that is a really lofty goal. Sure is. But I think we can achieve it with Craig Patterson. He's one of our intensivists who is passionate about several aspects of ICU medicine, this one included. We hope to have him as a regular guest on our show. So without further ado, let's dive right into the interview. Hey folks, I'm Jeremy. And I'm John. And we are Pomocast. So take a deep breath. <sighs> we are diving in. <laughs> that wasn't terrible. No. Hey guys, and welcome to Sepsis episode number five. We will start with some questions. All right, Craig. So tell us a little bit about how sepsis care was when you first started in medicine and contrast that with how it is currently today. Wow. Seems so long ago. <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, sepsis care has really evolved, and I would say that uh, my practice has evolved. To counter that, though, I'd say that, you know, I was a two, uh, third year medical student in 2003 in New Orleans and had the really good fortune to train at a place that. Uh, gave us a lot of uh, emphasis on the physiological underpinnings to the clinical conditions that we saw and really, I thought, did a remarkable job, particularly on our internal medicine rotations, of, of bridging the gap between the first two years of medical school and basic science and bringing that knowledge to bear at the bedside. The other thing that was really neat about that time was in 2003, we were only a couple of years removed from Emmanuel Rivers at all with their sentinel trial on advanced hemodynamic resuscitation for severe sepsis and septic shock. And so the story of sepsis for me really is parallel with two major developments in medicine. Number one, the Rivers trial. And number two was the advent and the development of the electronic medical record. And the two really go hand in hand. The very first night that I was on call as a fellow, we admitted a patient who came out of the operating room after having had a uh, intra-abdominal abscess drained and had the classic, you know, post-operative storm of sepsis with acute kidney injury, acute lung injury, multipressor shock, and was under-resuscitated. And since we didn't have a protocol and we didn't have com uh, computerized order entry, I sat there and it took me about 25 minutes, but I had committed to memory the orders that we entered in residency in the computer and I hand wrote every order, starting with uh, measure the CVP on the central line I just put in. And if it's less than eight, bolus normal saline in 500 cc increments every five minutes until the CVP is above eight. And then call the physician, et cetera, et cetera. And wrote the entire sepsis protocol out uh, by hand. And thankfully, that patient did well that night. And the next day on rounds... I was rounding with the attending physician who was the sepsis champion for the hospital and was responsible for implementing a rivers-based uh, standardized protocol. And he looked at the orders and he looked around on rounds and he said, who wrote this? And how did you know this? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, that's what we did in residency. And I did it so many times I had it committed to memory. This is really the fifth mm -hmm. system that I've been a part of, uh, really from the 
the early beginnings of implementing a sepsis strategy. And at the same time, uh, the electronic medical record and computerized order entry and now uh, an entire electronic medical record have really evolved. And the two have gone hand in hand. And we're now in an era where in our system, we've got not only a standardized, computerized order set for treating the septic patient, but we've also got an overlay of real-time analysis of a whole host of physiologic and biological variables that a computer program somewhere in the ether is running through and, and crunching numbers and identifying patterns of changes in labs and vital signs and other clinical parameters and alerting us when we should be thinking about sepsis, perhaps even before we're thinking about sepsis. Mm -hmm. And so it's really become a quite sophisticated system. And I just think that the neatest thing for me in retrospect to look back on my medical education and the way this has all come about is that the, the two concepts, our understanding and our approach to the management of probably the most impactful critical illness that we see on the critical care service has really mirrored the evolution of the electronic medical record. And we're now in an era of trying to leverage the tools that we have at our disposal to make this uh, highly protocolized, uh, very effective, and yet customizable at the same time. So, Let's devote some time to common clinical scenarios and issues that have come up over, over the years in our shop. So, if you're an SCBO2 slash dobutamine detractor, how would you treat any SCVO2s? Would you draw them? Our cardiac guys still use them a lot. How would you know if a patient just has a stress-induced cardiomyopathy, and do you even care? Oh, I care. Personally, I do still check SCVO2s in my septic shock patients, but have reduced my practice to utilizing dobutamine in the sub-60 patients, the ones that we feel have a true cardiomyopathy, but I don't just give them dobutamine in isolation. I also utilize bedside ultrasound, would order a formal echo, attempt some further measure of cardiac function, such as cardiac index from a flow track device, and make sure I have optimized their MAP and fluid status through a combination of ultrasound, lab work, and yes, even CVP and SVV. So I, I think it's very clear, and I think even uh, the most staunch defenders <laughs> of a rigid uh, highly standardized strategy for the resuscitation of the septic patient would agree that the CVP simply is not a good indicator of volume responsiveness. Uh, it's not a good indicator of intravascular volume. I say all the time, if I wrapped monofilament fishing line around your pulmonary artery right now and cinched it down tight, your CVP would go up, but that wouldn't tell me anything about your volume status in that acute moment. And so that's just one really crazy example of uh, to illustrate that, that volume status and CV, CVP don't necessarily go together. Uh, the data is real convincing on that, and essentially the relationship between the two is a complete scattergram, and you're about as good off flipping a quarter um, and guessing whether it will land on heads or tails as you are at looking at a CVP for the most part and telling what the volume status is. That being said, I think that there may be a role, particularly in the early phase of the evaluation and the resuscitation. And I don't want to discount, you know, that as an element of a bigger 
evaluation on a patient who's really sick because we would rather have more data points than fewer and then make use of the ones that fit our construct or that potentially challenge our construct that really stick out. But I just simply say that the CVP is part of a bigger strategy and part of a whole host of different parameters that we might look at to help us. But I I think we've moved away from the point where it is considered by itself a cornerstone of the evaluation and treatment of the septic patient. We've also got a a lot of different uh, less invasive monitors because, of course, the CVP needs a central venous catheter. Um, But we're in an era where we've got uh, a lot of different uh, monitors, uh, PICO, LIDCO, FlowTrack, et cetera. So I just think we have so many more tools at our disposal. We have so much more experience with those tools. I think for me, I've moved away from using CVP as a cornerstone, and I now use it as part of a a broader uh, evaluation. And I really probably only focus on it in the early acute phase of resuscitation, not necessarily uh, beyond, oh, six or 12 hours or so of resuscitation. Just as a side note, we have no affiliation with the program. It's just the device we have in our shop. Anyway. Fluids in the CHF or end-stage renal disease patient. Oh, yes. The uh, one diagnosis I do not want in my past medical history if I ever have sepsis in the hospital. (laughs) Tough call, especially if the dreaded term mixed shock gets thrown out there. Or if you truly aren't sure if sepsis is their driving factor versus cardiogenic shock. Those patients, I want every data point I can get my hands on. Extensive look for source to determine what extent sepsis is the primary driver versus cardiogenic. I want a bedside and eventual formo. I'm almost embarrassed to say this because it's so taboo in the foam world, but perhaps even a snake of truth, as one of my colleagues calls it, in place of Swan-Gans catheter. But they would definitely get an extensive fluid responsiveness evaluation of whatever my team was most comfortable using. I would add that while mixed shock patients are extremely challenging to treat, we far more often get called uh, on a patient with a vague history of congestive heart failure that everyone is scared to give fluids to. We do some investigating to determine that their EF is normal and they have a mild diastolic dysfunction. These patients frequently get under-resuscitated at our shop, as do the end-stage renal populations, due to fear in non-intensivist providers. But... The big thing to remember is that EF is not a static measurement. That's a very valid point. Even patients with severe CHF or even (gasps) pulmonary hypertension and RV failure develop sepsis and become volume deplete. These patients still need volume resuscitation just much more carefully and with closer monitoring and frequent reassessment. So let's flip over to hospital resources and utilization. We mentioned this briefly, and it gets brought up in the foam world a lot. It's challenging to come up with guidelines and definitions that work just as well in Brazil as it does in USA, European Union, and ANZICs. Something else is that there are many high-quality tertiary facilities in the U.S. There are far more small community hospitals without access to resources that the larger hospitals have. It's important to note the care in a small community hospital may be a lot closer to available to a developing country than we would like at times. It's variable what the ICU staffing model at these hospitals looks like. Who is staffing the ICU? Are they board-certified intensivists, internal medicine physicians, APPs? Not to mention, what is the nurse-to-patient ratio, proper surgical and other consultant support? 
And of course, what is their nighttime staffing like? Is it a tele-ICU? Is the doc available by phone? Is the doc on site? In creating this podcast, I have been slightly worried about some perceived backlash from the foam community about presenting Rivers and Early Goal in a more favorable light than I feel is common in the foam world. I agree. It's easy to post another nail in the coffin when one of the new trials comes out about sepsis. I think our group consensus is what works best for us in our current situation, which again is a tertiary hospital with several community hospitals. Running a protocolized model based on early goal allows us to approach similar results to what our tertiary facility with more robust intensivist coverage and experienced providers is able to produce. The providers in our system that disagree with the protocol are free to do so and can mindfully deviate. All that is asked of them is to keep orders how they want them in the system and explain to the nurses what they're doing and why so that there's no confusion with what care they want the patient to have at that time. Hopefully this discussion and this balanced approach to sepsis has provided some benefit to you. It's our belief that to truly become an expert on sepsis, you have to understand pathophysiology, the history, current guidelines and definitions, and what other experts are doing in our field, especially when they deviate from existing protocols. Once you understand all of that, you can begin to apply mindful deviation to your own practice, form your own opinions, and individualize care for your septic patients. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.